This is Macro Horizons, episode 22. Well, it was a good run. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of June 10th. And a reminder that what goes up eventually comes down, presumably in quarter point increments. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Well, Ian, another week, another rally seems to be this summer's theme. The price action was certainly helped by the dismal non-farm payrolls data from May. The headline NFP print of just 75000 was well under expectations. It was also accompanied by an aggregate downward revision of 75000 for March and April. One could argue that payroll's growth has stalled, although the parallels have been drawn with the experience in 2016 when we saw a choppy start to the beginning of the year. The Fed proved very willing to wait and see how things played out in that environment. I'll also offer the caveat, however, that the same year, just a few short months later, we also saw 10-year yields reach their record low of 1.32%. The broader debate about the timing of the Fed's first rate cut has become extremely topical. Looking at the futures market, we can see nearly fully priced by July Presumably, it will be difficult for the Fed to move at the June meeting. We're now into the period where we won't hear any new information from Fed speakers until the FOMC meeting itself. And so any opportunity for policymakers to guide the market's expectations from here is limited. This puts the focus primarily on the July meeting. Although June does offer the opportunity for the Fed to update forecasts and presumably hint of either more to come in terms of accommodation at some point, or simply staying the course with what's in the forward projections. We continue to like the cyclical re-steepening of the curve. The 2's 10's curve managed to push to the steepest levels we've seen in quite some time. This was primarily in a bullish fashion, which is consistent with the market pricing in a much higher probability that the Fed ultimately delivers a rate cut. The 10-year yield has managed to drift a bit lower with a one handle clearly in sight. We would expect that in the relatively near term, the 2% level gives on 10 years and the benchmark of all benchmarks returns to the land of the one handle. In light of how overbought the treasury market is, however, we struggle to imagine it's going to be a straight line to get there, and instead we'll look for a period of consolidation, a dynamic which is helped by the upcoming supply in the form of 10- and 30-year auctions. All of this with the risk-off backdrop of the ongoing trade war. 
for context, our pre-NFP survey showed that 55% of respondents expect that there will be additional tariffs sometime during the next three months. The same survey also suggested that the conclusion of the trade war would be bearish for treasuries, but the average expectation for where 10-year yields peaked was just 255, and 78% saw that as a good buying opportunity. Overall, our takeaway from this week has been a continuation and a deepening of some of the primary concerns that we've held throughout the year, and if anything, we would begin to bias our outlook for the Treasury market incrementally lower in terms of outright yield levels. So the Fed's not going to cut at the end of the month, right? Well, that's a question that I think most people would be surprised that we're even contemplating at this point. But to be fair, a great deal has changed over the course of the last two or three months. We've seen the trade war continue to escalate. We now have some anecdotal evidence that it is flowing through to not only business confidence, but the hiring landscape. In addition, the long-awaited return of inflation has yet to materialize in any meaningful way. All of this with a Fed that is quite frankly faced with a mounting series of headwinds on the global growth front. But domestically, I think things are still good. Maybe not great, but good. So does this reinforce the idea that now the Fed is acting as the world's central bank, so to speak? Well, it does at a minimum suggest that if the Fed cuts this year, which is increasingly consensus, that it will be more akin to the one-off easings that we saw in the 90s. Now, whether that ultimately translates into a more significant easing campaign really remains to be seen, and that will be a 2020 issue to be sure. I'd also point out that when we're talking about stabilization cuts, maybe we should be careful not to use the phrase a one-off. Maybe a three-off is better or something like that. We took a look back at 1995, 1998, where you saw some of these stabilization eases, if you will. And in reality, they were composed of three separate 25 basis point moves, totaling 75 basis points, sure. But the idea that it's kind of one and done might be a little overly simplistic and opens the door to say, if there's a 25 basis point ease in September, that we might expect something to come in December as well. That also brings up a question, is a series of three 25 basis point rate cuts when effective Fed funds is at 240 the same as when effective Fed funds were closer to 525 as they were in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, if you're worried about policy space with Fed funds at 240, you've got to be really worried about policy space with Fed funds at 165. So does that increase the chance of a larger move, say 50 basis points right from the get-go? I think that that's one of the open questions out there and a really good one. A thought that I have been having on this topic is it actually might behoove the Fed to ease 25 at the June meeting simply because the market isn't expecting it and Powell would get a bigger surprise bang for the move, as it were, than if it were much more clearly telegraphed for, call it July or some other time in the second half. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think as soon as it becomes clear from the Fed 
that a cut is coming in July, September, whenever it may be, the market's going to move there almost instantaneously, taking away any quote unquote surprise benefit for financial conditions that an untelegraphed move might provide. I'd also say maybe that already happened. Powell coming out and saying act as appropriate has pushed a chance of a 25 basis point cut in July, 90, almost 100 percent. What instead might be the case is, keep in mind, we have a new statement in June. They could tee up or kind of catch the statement language up to Powell's characterization of the committee sits ready to act as appropriate or whatever Fed speak they want to use, but codify that policy stance into the formal language. So what you're saying, John, is that it's summertime and the market is easing. I'm just glad to hear you open the short rates weekly. Well, I had to, to delete it. And not only will we get the updated statement, but also a new SEP, which is very exciting. And a question that we've been thinking about is, what is going to happen to not only the 2020 dot, I think that's going to drop, but also, is there a possibility that the 2019 dot gets lowered to reflect the shift in attitude that we're going to need an ease by the end of the year? I think that that would be a significant communications challenge for the committee if they decided to go that route. Not only would the market very quickly price in a much more significant easing campaign, but it would also be surprising given the Fed's general disposition to see a pre-commitment to any course for monetary policy. And I agree, Ian. And just mechanically in March, you saw 11 of the dots at the current median, which is 2.375. So to get nine people to revise those down, I think is a pretty high bar. But also just think of the macro context. You know, we have a committee who's biased to think that the drop in core PCE on a year-over-year basis may be transitory. Okay, maybe there's a reason to think that, but in order to move to your base case being a cut, what do you expect to happen to unemployment in that world? Is there a base case for unemployment in the fours? What do they expect inflation to do? Is it going to stay at 1.5? So that style of forward guidance shift would have to coincide with a pretty major economic shift. And as of now, that still seems pretty unwarranted. Also a reason why I don't think they're going to cut in June. Well, on the macro front, and you make a very good point, John, what about the consumer? The consumer hit a soft patch at the beginning of the year, but the Fed is really betting that consumption comes back in the second quarter, and we really haven't seen that flow through to the data, at least not as much as we would have anticipated with real personal spending at 0.0. Yeah, the Beige Book discussed this somewhat and didn't sound like the consumer was accelerating in growth, but also not capitulating. I think a lot of the discussion was modest or kind of flat year over year. Well, recall, all we need to do is see consumption grind sideways or even simply mean revert to the longer run historic averages to then require the rest of the economy to pick up in order to continue to see GDP prints north of 1%. The labor market has clearly become very topical, and it was interesting to see some of the work that John and Ben recently did on one of my personal favorite little bits of research that we do, and that is the pre-NFP employment anecdote rundown. Yeah, so the anecdotes include 
Empire State Manufacturing Employment, Philadelphia Fed Employment, the ISM surveys, a whole list. And we ran a historical regression to see of our favorite list, which variables among them offered the most explanatory power for headline NFP. And the three that came to the top were, somewhat unsurprisingly, ADP, ISM non-manufacturing employment, and challenger job cuts. Now, that's not to say that the aggregate of all 12 variables that we consider don't have an impact. In fact, taken together, the R squared is 0.85, which is pretty solid. Yeah. And, you know, for future lines of research, we could look into whether some type of variable reduction strategy like lasso or something like that could be used to more precisely identify. But in general, I think this confirms what you'd think of intuitively. ADP is correlated to NFP, even if there's some weird things with the revisions. And we're largely a services economy. So looking at ISM non-manufacturing employment makes sense. What's interesting is when those two signals or challenger job cuts start to show different things. You know, it's one thing if all three are pointing one signal, that's ominous for NFP. But we're in a very noisy period, as exemplified in the past week. I think it's just a helpful context as we look at the jobs market at this juncture. Bringing it back from the wonky weeds, we also saw twos ten steepen pretty substantially this week. 30 basis points was reached, and once that 25 basis point level we saw eventually gave way, and now we're comfortable going with this move. That's not to say that we couldn't see a retracement back to 25 basis points or even maybe a touch below. But the fact that this past range that we've been watching for forever is now broken really offers solace to those of us of the mind that the cyclical re-steepening is underway. One thing that I would add on that front is while it was never going to be a straight shot to 75 basis points in twos tens, the notion that we are shifting to a period where we will see the curve grind incrementally steeper until the Fed actually delivers a rate cut certainly resonates with us. The caveat that I would add is we could simply be seeing the trading range for twos tens expand rather than a clear trend developed toward a steeper curve. That's something that we will have a much better sense of in the wake of the FOMC meeting. And to your point, we've started to see the rally in twos get a little aggressive, you know, on a 10-day change basis. It's the fastest since the aftermath of Lehman. The reality is we're not in that type of macroeconomic environment. So, I agree with the notion that we might see it come back a little bit, but certainly if you ask me where is it going to be six months from now, I have no doubt in my mind we'll be looking at steeper. Well, John, one of the things that you did a great job of highlighting in the Short Rates Weekly was the idea that the pricing of a rate cut in the July meeting has gotten really aggressive, and that might be an opportunity to put on a tactical trade to fade that move. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't to say that there's a 0% chance of a July cut, but to price in near 100% of a 25 basis point move seems pretty aggressive. And there are a few ways to express that, either via selling the right Fed funds futures contract or paying OIS in a swap. But some version of that expression at least should be considered, given that that level of confidence and an ease seems a little too far. And one of the things that I believe often gets lost in conversations like this is that trade doesn't need to be held through the July FOMC meeting. 
Rather, it can be tactical, call it two, three weeks as people get a better sense of where the pendulum of policy sentiment has shifted. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I guess I'd have another question for you. We talked about twos, tens hitting 75 basis points. What kind of outright rate levels in twos and tens, at least a ballpark, might we expect at the moment when we hit 75 and twos, tens? So this is pretty binary. We'll have one of two outcomes. First, we will have the Fed entering a much more aggressive easing campaign because there's a rolling over of the domestic economy and the Fed really needs to provide some stimulus very quickly. In that environment, we will have two-year yields up against 1%. We will have the 10-year trading sustainably below 2% and the Fed poised to continue delivering more stimulus. I could easily see a situation where two-year yields are at 1%, tens are at 175, as we start to seriously question the growth prospects in the U.S. The other scenario, and this is the one that more closely mirrors what we saw in the 90s, would be a situation where the Fed delivers a rate cut, 25 basis points, two-year yields continue to drift lower, but the 10-year remains anchored above 2%, let's call it 225 or even 250, as the incremental amount of policy stimulus actually does potentially stoke inflation and does lead to at least a modest return of term premium as investors require additional compensation to go further out the curve. And in that second scenario, Ian, would you say a growth-positive breakthrough on the trade front would be required to get that done, or simply the Fed successfully counteracting the slowing impact of tariffs would be sufficient for that? I think if the Fed cuts rates, mortgage rates fall, we see companies more comfortable hiring and expanding regardless of what happens on the trade front, that we could see an inflationary impulse. Does it play out without a trade resolution? It would certainly be far more muted if there isn't some type of end to the trade war. And that was reinforced in our latest pre-NFP survey that very few thought there was no chance of more tariffs in the next three months. Almost across the board, you saw a pretty high likelihood that we're going to see further escalations and more tariffs imposed on not only China, Mexico, the EU. And one of our favorite responses was, Who's next? Armenia? Macedonia? Speaking of the rest of the world, other global central banks have started easing already. We saw rate cuts in India as well as in Australia recently. And that does beg the question, who is next? Certainly not the ECB. Yeah, at this point, the ECB is in a tough spot. We saw them come out and shift some language guidance that they're not going to hike through H1 2020. Not exactly a shocker. If anything, the market's gone way past that. That being said, the situation, especially in inflation expectations, is moving into a point where they're going to have to respond somewhat aggressively. One thing I look at is five-year, five-year euro inflation swaps are starting to push 1.2, 1.3%. That level of skepticism is what we saw in the aftermath of Brexit and massive flight to quality flows and risk about a global synchronized slowdown. Not hiking for another six months is not an adequate response as of yet. And all of this is even more complicated by the fact that Brexit risk is still outstanding and you have the transition away from Draghi without an obvious front runner at this moment. So in that context, 10-year German Bund yields at negative 25 might actually be a buy. 
Yeah, I mean, as much sticker shock as we have about 10-year treasuries, they're still over 2%. And still positive. Hey, you're really uh, into positive thinking today, aren't you? I'm positively happy you're back, John. Aw, thanks, Ben. You were gone, John? Yeah. Are you positive? Yikes. In the week ahead, the market discourse surrounding the timing of the Fed's first rate cut will become very topical. We have no incoming Fed speak to help guide the conversation. We do, however, have CPI on Wednesday and retail sales on Friday, along with what promises to be a series of tradable headlines and tweets related to the ongoing trade tensions. While shorting the August Fed Funds futures contract might go squarely into the too soon column, it is difficult to expect a June rate cut at this stage. Recall that the Fed's two biggest bets for this year have been that the weakness in consumption seen during the first quarter would reverse itself, as would the persistent lowflation that has been experienced throughout the last several months. In that context, this week will be particularly informative on the data front. We've been watching the 2s, 10s curve re-steepen with a target of 30 basis points, at least initially. A breakthrough that puts into range 33 basis points, which is an upward sloping trend line, and beyond there, 40 basis points would be a reasonable target. Overseas developments beyond the trade war are going to continue to remain relevant. Last week, we saw a very disappointing German exports figure. In fact, it was the lowest since 2015, which to some extent is a clear residual from the trade war. But we've also gotten to the point where the global growth slowdown itself has become thematic and taken on a life of its own beyond trade. And I think that that was always the risk. And one of the issues the market was concerned about early is the unpredictable nature of what happens during a true trade war. We're not especially concerned with the supply this week. We have 38 billion threes, 24 billion tens, and 16 billion thirties. The reopening auctions in tens and thirties will surely receive enough sponsorship to be non-issues for the broader direction of the market. That said, on the margin they will at least incrementally contribute to the steepening bias and could, in the event of a reasonable tail for tens, trigger a technical move that extends any breakout on the steepening side. We haven't officially entered summer yet, and the trading conditions thus far haven't reflected what we would expect to be low-volume, low-conviction trading. We think that that ultimately results later this summer. So in the interim, this week ahead in particular, we expect conviction to be relatively high. We'll be looking for choppy price action, not as a function of limited market participation, but rather as the dueling narratives of when and if the Fed should ease, but rather as the dueling narratives of whether or not the Fed should ease come together and we see bets made on either side of that outcome. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And as we look longingly at the door of our windowless recording studio, we can't help but wonder whom we'd need to contact at SIFMA to ensure the return of early closed summer Fridays. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. 
please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.